Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, natural, story, from the space Come, well lit. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, Kane and Mocha here with a quick message from the editing room. This episode was recorded in January, before Chinese New Year. We took a little break right after recording this episode, but now we're back on track. So with that, we wish you a romantic Valentine's Day, a happy new year full of frenetic rabbit energy. And without further ado, here is my original Firelight Chat with our special guest, Jonathan Gropper. Please enjoy. All right. Anyway, we will get this started. So hello, ladies and gentlemen. We are back with another episode of Firelight Chats broadcast to you live from not live. This will probably go out a couple <laughs> days later, but uh, we are here in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan with a Another very special guest on a very cold day, but we will heat it up a little bit sitting by the fire and just chatting about the world and about Taiwan. So we have a guest named Jonathan Gropper. Jonathan and I are both gold card holders here in Taiwan. I am part of a gold card line group and I noticed a article posted by one of the gold card members recently. The article is entitled, Hey Taiwan, it's your gold carder. We need to talk by John Gropper. It's an op-ed from Tiansha, the Commonwealth magazine. It was a very interesting article. I think it's trending quite a bit as well. I wanted to talk with John about this article, about uh, his experience as a gold carter, and then Taiwan, and possibly, if we have time, get into some of his other interests and background and whatever. We'll see where it goes. So welcome, John. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Could you uh, introduce yourself to the audience? We had a chance to talk a little bit before, but I'd like to give you a chance to introduce yourself. Uh, well, quick intro is... Uh I was born in Israel, moved back and forth between uh, Israel and the U.S., uh, trained as a lawyer there, serial entrepreneur, uh, mostly uh, e-commerce and uh, real estate. I think for the past six years, I've been in Asia. Three of those have been spent in uh, Taiwan. So you were born in Israel, but you immigrated to the States? Correct. Okay, nice. When was that? Uh, actually, it's been uh, back and forth. So born mm. in Israel uh, when I was about eight years old, went to the U.S. and uh, returned when I was 14 to Israel. Where in the States did you grow up? Uh, East Coast. So uh, Jersey, Philadelphia. Okay. And uh, later on, spent time in Miami. Okay. I'm sorry. That's okay. Just joking. <laughs> <laughs> survived it. Nice. All great places, of course. We are teasing. All right. But now you are here, and I think as well, with Taiwan, you are kind of in and out and about uh, yeah, I travel quite a bit. Okay, so we are both world travelers. Hopefully, we will also be able to talk about our love of the world and some countries and other things that we enjoy as well. Well, I think that uh, that unique aspect of uh, traveling gives you a very good and keen eye to what's going on in Taiwan as well as any other place that you've had experiences in. Mm, yeah, that's very true. Okay, so 
we can just kind of jump into this article since it's the elephant in the room, so to speak. So (laughs) yeah, let's do that. And then we'll, uh, we'll move on from there and talk about what comes. So let me first for the audience explain what the gold card is. This is directly from the gold card office. So what is the Taiwan Employment Gold Card? Launched in 2018, the Taiwan Employment Gold Card is a four-in-one card that includes a resident visa, work permit, ARC, which is an alien resident certificate, and re-entry permit, which allows you to leave and re-enter Taiwan multiple times over the course of one to three years. So these industries that are eligible to apply for the Taiwan Employment Gold Card are as follows, science and technology, economy, education, culture and arts, sport, finance, law, architecture, national defense, and special cases. Ooh, that sounds interesting. (laughs) Sounds a little sexy. So I am here on the under the education department, the Ministry of Education. What about you, John? Uh, For me, it's uh, economic development. Economic development under the Ministry of Economic Affairs. Correct. Okay, sounds good. What about your Taiwan story? You know, what was kind of your impetus to come to Taiwan? I believe we've been here for about the same amount of time. I'm coming up on three years now. When did you first arrive? What is your kind of why Taiwan story? Uh, Yeah, it's been about uh, three years now as well. And for me, like I said earlier, I was uh, traveling in Asia, met some friends in Shanghai, ended up looking at some uh, opportunities over in Taiwan and uh, went to a function, uh, met a representative from the NDC. They heard about my background and they said, hey, we got this program, Gold Card program. We'd love for you to apply. We'd love to have you here and apply your skills and talents. And I said, sounds good. Why not? Hmm. What were you doing in Shanghai at the time? Actually uh, visiting some uh, international lawyer friends. Okay. Yeah. Your background is in law. Uh, yeah. We'll call that a expensive hobby. Expensive hobby. Uh, yeah. yeah. Quite an expensive one. <laughs> uh, it is. But you know what? It's, uh, it, it's very unique that it gives you a whole new perception and dimension into um, day-to-day things or business in general. And it's a very good skill set and toolkit to have. For me, I enjoy applying it in um, building and creation. If it's... Mm. Um, different companies, different opportunities, uh, different uh, scenarios, situations. It's always good to have a germane understanding Mm. of law or the impact of different activities or actions and just hopefully sometimes uh, seeing around the corner. Mm. So that's John and why he came here um, to Taiwan. But according to his article, we need to have a conversation. Taiwan, we need to talk. This article you guys can find on the cw.com.tw. That is the Commonwealth Magazine. It was published on January 8th of 2023. So quick synopsis is that you don't seem very happy. Is that uh, correct or incorrect? Well, interestingly enough, over the past few years, I've been uh, interviewed uh, and actually written about this topic extensively. I'd like to think it's mostly positive, but I think it depends who you ask. The article in question right now, it's basically a almost a conclusion. You know, after three years, a little bit over three years, people that are coming in on the gold card, they're good people. They're talented people. Uh, the original intent for the gold card program was to try and get the, the best and the best that Taiwan could get. So much so that some of the qualifications include international prizes like a Nobel Prize. If you have one, you can get a gold card. Uh, If you have intellectual property, if you have any patents, which is the same in my case, we'd love to give you a gold card. So you're trying to attract very intelligent people, people that are business builders, industry builders, people that are magnets 
But when they show up, it's a totally different situation. And it's a frustration that is uh, shared throughout the Gold Card program with anybody and everybody that's a professional with talent that values themselves and their time. And unfortunately, it's something that's been shared with a lot of very accomplished foreigners that, and actually, I don't even like the term foreign. I'm going to say international from now on. International talent that came to Taiwan and eventually just got frustrated and left. And I think it's a grave mistake to let these people go. It's a lost opportunity. I actually wrote about this um, numerous times before uh, with the hopes that it's going to get the attention of somebody at the Gold Court office or maybe the NDC or some of the politicians that would greatly benefit from having these people and their expertise around them because that's what they're here for. They're not just here to just wander around Taiwan and uh, try to figure it themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently that's uh, that, that has ruffled some feathers with uh, a certain group. But, you know, my LinkedIn and my Instagram has been just blowing up with commentary that's been absolutely positive, just echoing and enforcing everything that I've been saying. And that comes from the qualified professionals, that comes from the gold card people. It comes from really accomplished individuals, and I I see their LinkedIn's, and I see they've done a lot, they've been to a lot of places, they've done a lot of things, and it's a shame that they're so grossly underutilized here. Yeah, before jumping on here, I took a little peek at your phone and saw a a bunch of messages. So (laughs) who are these people on LinkedIn? I mean, are they gold card people? Are they people who have, you know, some kind of experience with Taiwan? Or what do you gather from the group of people who are reaching out to you? So they're uh, they're senior professionals, they're managers, they're uh, global managers, regional managers, uh, lawyers, chartered accountants, professionals of different degrees and backgrounds. And uh, some of them are even actually uh, Taiwanese. Mm. They're just saying, yeah, you know, it's it's really a shame this is what's going on. I have people from family offices uh, messaging me. I have family businesses, family business owners uh, lamenting about this. It's it, it's all across the board, and it's uh, very professional people. It's people that I, I, I'd love to get in a room and get their ideas. And these are people that, if I was in the government, I'd love to harness them as much as possible. Because they they have something to give and they want to give back and they don't have an opportunity. Yeah. So it says here in the subtitle to the photo in this article, it says, John pointed out that Taiwan could use a revamp in mindset if it wants to attract and retain high value talents. Can you explain a little bit about that? So these people come in through the Gold Card program and uh, they're very excited for a little bit. And that excitement wears off rather quickly. When they go into work in a Taiwanese company, they typically are not given a they're not given a position of responsibility. They're basically trying to understand what's going on around them while being hammered into a position that somebody understood for them. So all their skill is not applied. Uh, and that's not even taking into account the atrocious um, work hours or the salary that's not commensurate with what these individuals can get in other countries. So before they know it, they decide to leave Taiwan. That's the professional employee route. Now, if you're looking at entrepreneurs, I can share my experience, which uh, I tried to bring in a couple of my e-commerce companies in the U.S. Mm. A few of them actually set serious precedents in the U.S. in terms of creating a market that wasn't there before. I interacted with different people in Taipei. Some were really excited, but they were not the decision makers. I got into a room with the decision makers, and literally I was just brushed off. They asked me to give them a presentation. Uh, It was a really detailed presentation outlining the benefits to the individuals, Taiwanese citizens, uh, the benefits to stores to increase commerce 
uh, the increase in obviously tax revenue from that, and they uh, added uh, public safety. So you're creating jobs, you're selling more products, you're gaining exposure for different companies that want to get into different consumer bases, and you're also generating more revenue. It's a win-win all around. But the response that I got was just utter, just no interest, no understanding, no interest, but thank you for coming up. Hmm. Literally in that presentation, I think I had maybe uh, 20 slides. I think around slide 12, I just said to the room, um, frankly, I think I'm just wasting my time here. And uh, I was done. Hmm. What do you owe that reaction to? What do you think is the reason for that? You know what? I think one thing I noticed is people don't necessarily want to innovate. When you innovate, you take a risk, you take a chance. Uh, I think people here like to stay in the center of the box as much as they can. And it's uh, really unfortunate because for me, growing in Israel, it's, uh, I see a lot of potential parallels and a lot of uh, real parallels between Israel and Taiwan. You know, both are small places, not necessarily in the best neighborhood. Population uh, started out about the same, same age. And actually, um, at this point, Taiwan has more than double the population of Israel. But over the last 75 years... Israel has become a powerhouse, uh, not, not just militarily, but what we're talking about from a entrepreneurial standpoint, from a business standpoint, there's a lot of innovation that comes out of uh, Israel, not just in, it's not just a one trick pony. You know, it's not just uh, hardware. It's not just software. If it's medicine, if it's uh, science, if it's finance, if it's economics, if it's AI, if it's hard technology, if it's software, if it's Anything and anything that needed innovation, the mentality that is espoused in Israel from a young age is to innovate and to solve the problems yourself. And I actually wrote an article that was on Commonwealth Mm -hmm. that covered this. Just uh, six ideas that I think Taiwanese and Taiwanese business owners would like to maybe know about Israel more intimately. And for me, dealing with um, so far different entities in Taiwan and just more of all Taiwan experience, it's been the exact opposite. And unfortunately, I think the biggest strength that Taiwan can have, which is it's small, is actually made into its biggest hindrance. Because when you're small, you can take a chance. You can make changes. You can make changes swiftly. You can reiterate. You can refine. I don't see that happening here at all. And that's actually not only a shame, it's really dangerous. Because I look at the history that uh, Israel had. And if Israel had this mentality in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, it would not be called Israel anymore. But I guess right now it's... uh, so it's okay. So this article is also from Tiansha Magazine, Commonwealth Magazine. It is called Six Lessons Taiwan and Taiwanese Industries Might Want to Learn from Israel. Israel is known as a startup nation and shares a lot of commonalities with Taiwan. Its disruptive innovation across various industries is rapidly changing the globe. What lessons could there be for Taiwan? This article tries to cover that. So what do you think is the biggest things that are holding Taiwan back in this sense? I think it's about responsibility. People don't want to get into trouble, so they don't try to innovate. And I think that starts from a young age. People are just taught to follow and do. Somebody else above you knows better. Just listen to what they're doing. To expand on that, one thing that I kept hearing from international professionals here is managers were promoted based on years on the job and not necessarily experience or expertise or contribution. Mm -hmm. That's dangerous. (laughs) Mm. It's difficult, right? Because that's pretty much the same situation all across Asia. My roots are from Japan, and that's why I'm not in Japan, because I think it's a very similar kind of mentality. Korea is a very conservative culture as well, and I think a lot of that kind of thing you can find in Korea as well. You know, I think it kind of dovetails with what you had mentioned, that a change of mindset 
is needed. But to me, it seems like a very difficult thing, you know, because it's these are like deeply entrenched cultural values or just like uh, inertia. Why do you think Israel was able to forge a different path? Um, what really I think sets um, Israel apart and I think Jews in general is the emphasis on self-reliance, the emphasis on education, on culture, and uh, on a sense of identity. You can't escape it. You know, they just, um, wherever you go, you're going to find a population and they're going to be your kinsmen. They're very proud to be that. You just are. It's an ism. And it's interesting, actually, that you brought up Korea. Korea had a very hard time in the 50s. But if you look at what they're doing now, 76 million people, they also have a very disproportionate impact on the global village. Uh, they decided to diversify and create industries and uh, export their culture. It's Soft a, power. Correct. It's a strong sense of identity. They're proud of it. And they're sending it globally for everybody to see. Taiwan, Taiwanese, I don't think they, they're not that vocal about their identity. And the problem is, it's called the human race. It is a race. If you're quiet, if you're in the back, nobody's going to see you and eventually just fade out. And history is full of civilizations like that. And civilizations that, that have been around for thousands of years as well that we don't remember. So I think it's a very dangerous game to play when you're a small country or a small group of people in an area that's competitive and you're not looking at your advantages realistically and not actually assessing your disadvantages in a swift manner. So for a small place like Taiwan, you can go and you can actually have a meeting with all the banks. Some are government owned, some are private owned. You can get 20 people in a room and say, look, we need to innovate our banking system. What do you think about that? What are you going to do about that? And I'd like to get it done in a couple of years. It's not a Sisyphean task. It's doable. But for some reason, it's stuck in the 1980s here. It's just one example of something that's unnecessary that doesn't need to occur. Uh, I've actually gotten a lot of uh, commentary and um, eventually some different reporters that were asking me for input about how I compare Hong Kong to Taiwan and how I compare Singapore to Taiwan. And I think they, these are just very different animals. They're totally different. And I think making that comparison, it just it's not realistic. Uh, Hong Kong for over a century has been a destination for international commerce. They have common law. Uh, their core system is in English. Their banking system is very advanced. How do you compare Taiwan to that? You can't. You don't. Uh, that, that's currently not the strength. And you need to be honest with that. And if you want that to be your strength, then you need to build towards it. Uh, you look at Singapore, a nation state. It's a mecca for businesses, for different industries, because they made it business friendly. They understand that business owners and even if it's an international conglomerate, they don't need the aggravation. If it's, uh, see, I've been here long enough. So if it's, if it's too much mafia, people go away. Mm. And, that, and that's what happens. And you look at Taiwan, it's, I think, globally ranked as a number one brain drain location. I think the figure stands at about 7 or 8% uh, a year in terms of uh, the workforce that Taiwan loses. So obviously the gold card is trying to offset that. So you acknowledge that there's a problem, but you don't give the people that came in to help you any tools to help you. It, it just, it, it, to me, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. And the gold card office, the, their approach is akin to, you have a bucket full of water with a hole in the bottom. They're not fixing the hole. They're just adding more water. There's no point to that. It's insane. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that, you know, you don't think that Taiwan can compare to Singapore and Hong Kong. They're very different beasts in a lot of ways. Um, but you said that if they want to innovate, they have to innovate towards that. How do you think they could do that? Do you think that that's impossible? Do you think it's, you know, within the realm of possibility that they can target those similar aspirations? 
Look, people, when they put their minds to something, they can accomplish great things. Inside of a century, you went from barely flying a plane in Kitty Hawk to landing on the moon. So if you can put your mind to it, you can do it. The question is, do the people here want to do it? Does the government want to do it? Or do they just want to create the image? That, that's really what it comes down to. You can do anything you want if you focus on it and you decide that you're going to do it and you put the tools in play. Mm. So you think there is a mismatch between these government initiatives and the actual want to work towards this goal. Is this a PR stunt? <laughs> you, you tell me, is it? I don't know. I'm asking you. You're the man of the hour. <laughs> I, I think there's definitely a PR component here. Mm. But the reality is, what are you doing with these people? You know, you had 5,000 people come in. I think realistically, you only have about 1,500 of them that are still here. And of those, a fraction, I would call them functional within the parameters of their intended use, if I was a government official. I think it's actually a little scary that they don't take any statistics on what these people are doing once they're here, uh, much less even ask them, how can we help you? Mm. I think there's also some sort of mental disparity between the idea of why these people are here and what do you do with them. You know, it's these people took a chance on Taiwan. It's not the other way around. They flew here. They skipped on opportunities in other countries. They're losing their time. They lost money and they're getting frustrated. They're capable. They want to do something. These are type A. These are creative people. They're innovative people. They want to do something. They want to build something. They want to contribute and they don't have a good outlet for that. So what happens? They go to the next opportunity. You know, unfortunately, I, I can count hundreds of people that I know personally that have just left frustrated. Others are just optimistic to the point of being unrealistic, but there's still a very vocal minority that thinks that everything is good and everything is fine and everything is great. Mm -hmm. I think a with that group, you might want to actually look at what their background is and if they were doing anything productive where they came from, frankly. The, you, you had mentioned the number of people who have left. I know a group of friends who are still here, um, who I met through the gold card, and definitely I know quite a few who have left as well. I also do know personally ones who have left very unhappy. I know some people who are happy here as well. And yeah, I think there's a lot of different reasons and stories behind why. Uh, the Gold Card office actually wrote a recent article saying, clarification of the 40% of Gold Card holders leaving Taiwan. So apparently there was another article that got quite a bit of attention throughout the Taiwan media um, about 40% of Gold Card holders leaving Taiwan. And I think the headline indicated that low pay drives these 40% of Gold Card expats to leave Taiwan. So let's actually have some uh, fun with these numbers. So 40% uh, of gold card holders leaving Taiwan due to low pay. Why are the other 60%? What's going on with them? That 40% is not 40% of everybody that's here. It's of those that are leaving. It, again, th this is just a smaller fraction of what the actual number is for total departures. And uh, one of the things that got me into trouble with the gold card office a while back, because I'm apparently very naughty like that, is when I was still in the gold card group, I actually asked the group, because I want to do my own little survey, see how many people are still here, see how many people are planning on leaving, uh, are they enjoying their experiences, and uh, the numbers were not pretty. And instead of the gold card office taking this and asking what can we do better, they tried to just debase my informal 
analysis. And I think this, uh, this article here is another just unfortunate, disingenuous attempt at trying to minimize the damage. It's just doubling down. Uh, recently, actually, there was another uh, very, really poorly written attempt at a answer to my recent Commonwealth article. And outside of disparaging me, they actually made the case that, yes, there's a brain drain here. You have the gold card people, they're leaving, but I'm the issue for writing that article that shows that that's an issue. And I think that's, that's comical, but it's really, really unfortunate. It's unnecessary. Surprisingly enough, I'm not the enemy of the gold card office. I'm actually, I was brought here through the gold card office. Nobody from the gold card office reached out to me and said, hey, you know, you're making some interesting points. And not even just to me. Uh, anybody else that's been in this group for one year, two years, three years, reach out and say, hey, how's your experience? Mm. What can we do for you? Nobody said that. You know, for, for me, it's unbelievable that I need to go to a uh, cell plan provider and get a local to go and co-sign for a 600 NT plan. But that would be co-signed for a 600 NT plan. Correct. Or I go to a bank, uh, I deposit, I have a relationship with the bank, uh, I decide that I need a credit card here, and they give me a couple thousand, few thousand dollars worth of a credit line. It, it sends a specific message that they either don't know how to deal with uh, quote-unquote foreigners, internationals, or they don't want to. And those foreigners understand that message, and guess what? They leave, and that's, you're voting with your feet. And if the gold court office was honest and says, yeah, you know what? We really should take statistics on how many people actually got a gold card and never showed up because that's a thing. But for them, it's a success because they issued one. They don't have statistics on hmm, this person showed up, stayed for four months and left. I've had multiple people actually message me on LinkedIn. Same exact situation. According to the gold office, gold card office, that's a success because they issued another gold card. Did they stay? No. Did they contribute anything? Did they flourish here? No. Each gold carder that leaves... To me, that, that person is an ambassador, for better or worse, for Taiwan. So they go back to whichever country they came from, and they say, yeah, uh, I, I tried it, but here's what happened. And they don't have a good story to say, and that, that's, that's awful, and that's fixable. And the fact that it hasn't been fixed in so many years, it leaves me speechless. Hmm. I'm wondering how, you said it's fixable. I'm wondering how easy or difficult that task might be. That subline was that a change in mindset is needed. From my experience as a, a longtime educator, I know that changing a mindset is actually very difficult and takes time. So if that's kind of the underlying issue here, do you think that perhaps it just needs time? So it depends on who your target is. If you're looking at the locals that grew up here and are getting into the workforce, and the capable ones that are looking to leave Taiwan as soon as possible for the U.S., Canada, or Europe, where they get paid what they're worth? Or are you talking about right now with the gold card people and what they can do? So I think it's much easier to put the NDC in the same room with uh, gold carders such as myself and hash out a plan. Put us in touch with the respective ministries. You know, I have, um, I have a friend, a very good friend of mine. Uh, he's a uh, pianist and uh, actually another one who's a uh, thespian. They tried real hard to get traction in Taiwan. They went to the uh, TIA CCA office, I think. I probably got the acronym wrong, but it's, uh, they, they deal with entertainers okay. in the entertainment field. Apparently, this office has a huge budget, but they don't give it to anybody. They told a classical pianist, uh, we don't really need any more classical music, but if you can uh, create any, what was the term? World-leading Taiwanese music will be happy to pop music. We'll be happy to fund you. Mm. Okay, uh, that, that that's like asking a fish to to fly. 
And there's a budget there. It's just not applied properly. So what happens to this musician? He leaves. What happens to my um, theater friend? He tried to set up a theater company here. Getting the support from the different agencies, um, if it was um, city level or if it was um, through different agencies, was time-consuming. He went through the process, and eventually it led nowhere. So what's the point? Why invite these people here if you don't give them the tools to succeed here? Uh, for me, as an entrepreneur, uh, I came in anticipating to set up multiple businesses. The process was just awful. You know, you come from the U.S., you can set up a company in 15 minutes. It's a little bit more than 15 minutes here. And there, there's so much overhead to just keeping that company going and so many limitations that it just it didn't make sense anymore. And the more that I got into the startup community here, into the technology community here, I noticed that companies are, if anything, they're setting up an office here by name, but it's incorporated somewhere else. Their funds are kept somewhere else. Most of the talent is kept somewhere else because the government structure is so rigid and so limiting that as an entrepreneur coming in, you're going to have a unreasonable time. And one thing that entrepreneurs like is speed, the convenience to execute their ideas. Otherwise, why would you go into not only a headwind, but go into a full storm when you don't have to? You know, you have a Singaporean entrepreneur coming to Taiwan saying, I want to set up a business. It's going to be three months and a lot of money before he even gets a potential okay. Guess what? There's 20 other countries that will say, please come in, we'll take your money. Mm. Yeah, I feel like this keeps going back to my question, which is how? How can we fix it? Because you, you, know, you mentioned that it's easy to fix. But to me, it seems like there's a confluence of many, uh, a multitude of factors that are deeply ingrained. So I'm just wondering, you know, I know all these problems and I, I, I believe that the gold card office does know about them, whether they're handling it right or not. That's obviously a very open question, but I'm just wondering what your advice would be on where to start. So I would actually, I would propose having the gold card office renamed the gold card marketing office so they can bring in people and that's their job. Then they have a KPI that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But what happens afterwards? There's no continuity of service. There's no continuity, period. You need to establish a different office, probably comprised of gold carters, such as uh, myself, such as international lawyers that are in there, such as other business people, such as artists. Each one represents the field that they came in for. So they know what the pressure points are. They know what the problems are. And from that, you start with a plan. And that plan becomes implementables. The artist knows to go to a specific agency and ask a specific person, hey, this needs to be modified or have somebody else in the NDC or in a different compartment deal with that. The international banking lawyer can tell you, hey, uh, these are things that I would suggest modifying. Big things, small things. Some small things make a big difference. And there's a lot of small things here that should be modified. From your knowledge, do you think there has ever been any steps thus far in this direction? I think you kind of alluded to it in your article about you know, when you first came, they said, you know, you would get phone calls from government officials, from the NDC, from the gold car, from local politicians, and that you had even kind of reached out to them proactively, but never got, you know, much traction on that. Do you think there have been attempts and they have just failed? Or do you think that there's just a complete lack of uh, movement in these directions? So when it was election time, I did get phone calls from uh, different interested parties <laughs> who were very interested in picking my mind. And those conversations kind of disappeared, to be honest. That's always fun in Taiwan, election time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's a hoot. But um, yeah, it's it just it's very discouraging for all these people to come in and just see a whole lot of nothing. And with all these messages that I keep getting, some of these people have been here for 20 years. So I asked them, has it changed much in the last decade, in the last five years, in the last 20 years? So in the last 20 years, it changed a little bit. That's what they're telling me. 20 years is a long time. As a human being, uh, we, we, we're lucky if we count to 100. So all these professionals only have so much time. They're not going to sit around waiting here. And it, it's losing. 20 years of a person. Now multiply that by 1,000 people. Multiply that by 5,000 people that left. That's human capital that Taiwan sorely needs and is missing and is lacking and obviously tried to get in. But where's the continuation of the thought? You got them in and now what? Mm. You know, for me, I'm, I'm a little scrappy. So I went around, I got some uh, people who could help me and I uh, even went shopping for some businesses here. Most people won't do that. Me doing my due diligence, I opted not to buy these businesses for different concerns that actually involved the things beyond the business, beyond the business P&L. Why? Because I just don't need the aggravation. And it's really unfortunate. And apparently I have a much longer fuse because I still write about this, whereas the majority of the people that are like me have just left. So that, that's a silent majority that just walked. If you can't even buy a company, how would you be able to start one here? Well, I tried both. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, I did set up a uh, basically a nonprofit. It's a referral service. It's a bilingual psychology clinic, basically. I found that information. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. It looks something necessary. Yeah. Yeah. American Taiwanese Mental Health Institute. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So right now it's just acting as a referral service to select um, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, just because that's another example of something that I saw that was glaring that was in need of upgrading here. Mm, it's interesting. It says, our vision, the American Taiwanese Mental Health Institute is developed from the ground up to be the new bilingual gold standard of clinical practice in Taiwan. Gold standard. I like what you did there. <laughs> As an industry leader, it's our responsibility to make significant changes in the mental health space in Taiwan, one client at a time, and by contributing to society at large. I can add that it's a aging society as well. And definitely from my experiences, educating Asian students, you know, from all Asian countries and also having a background in psychology as well. I know this is a very important issue in Asia, East Asia specifically. So, And it's uh, unfortunately here, it's um, underserved and um, grossly overmedicated for the wrong reasons. And uh, for me, speaking with different clinicians, I saw there's definitely a need here. So I try to put something together. And uh, right now it's, it's just at my expense. But I think it's, it's a good thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's putting tools for people that need them. And uh, on that note, actually, it's, it's interesting that a lot of Taiwanese uh, clinicians went to the U.S., got their degrees there. But when they come back to Taiwan and they try to apply their craft, they're not able to because their license is not recognized here. They're basically forced to redo their program. So it's a disincentive to have proper help to begin with. And it's also a disincentive for Taiwanese to go abroad and learn something new and come back and bring it. Mm. Uh, you know, I have a lot of uh, MD friends as well. I met them in the U.S. I met them here. Uh, they, they would go for practicums over there, but they would sign draconian contracts over here when they come back. So they would have a year of uh, additional expertise and knowledge, but then they would have to come back here, sign a contract for at least five years in the same hospital, getting paid a fraction of what they would otherwise. And all the new methodologies, all the new ideas that they learned over there, they're not really getting a chance to fully apply them here. You know, it just begs the question, why? Hmm. And, and these are Taiwanese. This is not a gold card anymore. Hmm. Why this initiative? The ATMI? Yeah. 
it's something that I saw that's necessary between people coming in through the Gold Card program, people coming in into Taiwan, seeing how my Taiwanese friends actually interact and express themselves in the world. There's definitely a need for mental health for everybody in their lifetime, typically more than once, and there's nothing wrong with that. Life is a set of challenges, and it's how you, how you deal with them that matters. If you have the tools, you can manage. Things that seemed insurmountable at one point in time, once you have the tools, just seem like another walk in the park. Mm. And you don't need to have people that just walk around suffering day in and day out because of improper care or some sort of uh, idea that something is wrong with them. So this, this was just a, a good thing to do, just to give people another option, another opportunity to try and improve themselves. Mm. It sounds like a very honorable idea and also a very monumental one <laughs> as well, which you know I was kind of asking you about earlier. I mean, I feel like this is also kind of a microcosm of that other issue where I think we kind of zoom in and look at the mental health space. You know, I think there's some of those same problems that we had alluded to, these kind of entrenched bigger problems or things that kind of span different disciplines and different parts of any society, right? So yeah, I feel like even inside this, if you're kind of micro-focusing, you know, on healthcare or mental health or something like this, it's such a huge issue here and a very difficult thing to kind of overcome here in Taiwan. Uh, it is. It absolutely is. It's uh, something that also unfortunately gets uh, swept under the rug here, uh, especially with older generations interacting with uh, younger generations. Yes. Um, people interacting with their peers. Uh, there's a lot of uh, misplaced uh, stigma. Uh, there's a lot of uh, quote-unquote experts in the market through social media or they just throw a book together and it just becomes pop psychology, which is nowhere close to proper psychology, psychiatry. And they exist because there's a need. But again, it's not the optimal tools to solve the problem at hand. Hmm. I'm just wondering, do you think, you know, because usually in the States we'll think that, you know, if there's a problem we can solve it, right? And a lot of times we do that through capitalism, business kind of methods, trying to have that efficiency within the system. Do you think that that's possible here in Taiwan is kind of leading through these entrepreneurial kind of solutions? Or do you think this is, I'm kind of harping back to this same question, do you think it's just a much deeper thing of mentality or mindset that might just really take a lot more time? I think if you go to schools and you see kids trying to express themselves, uh, they're very shy about it. But then what doesn't help is you see the parents actually shushing the kid and speaking on their behalf. That image carries with the kid into adolescence, into adulthood, into their professional career. And that's how you end up with a culture that's a following culture, not a leading culture. All of this actually ties in. It's the cultural identity, but cultural identities modify. They're, they're malleable. You just need to introduce the right stimuli. If you look outside of Taipei, if you go and ask somebody in, let's say, Nanto, what their biggest aspiration is in high school, do you know what they say? They want to be the manager of 7-Eleven. Now, imagine a thousand people like that. Imagine a hundred thousand people, 10 million people like that. How much talent is wasted? How much opportunity is wasted there? If somebody told that kid when he was young, what do you want to do? What, what's your passion? What motivates you? And let that grow. If you notice in society here, I've been hanging around a lot of the local places, around a lot of locals, being here long enough to start scratching the surface. People are afraid to express themselves. A lot of things end up getting bottled up, uh, both in uh, interpersonal connections and in, uh, professional settings. It seems that unfortunately, not a lot of value is placed on the individual. 
And the individual is actually the, the human capital in the society. You unfortunately see that in the working environment here. The salaries are abysmal. You end up with 22 million people that are just scratching by, you know, going to the night market and saying, oh, this is the best thing ever. But now the, the pounded chicken is uh, 70 NT as opposed to 50 NT. But on the other end of the spectrum, even from this window here, we're looking at how much are these condos? A lot. What's a lot? Because um, I'm from Miami. I know what a lot is. How much is a lot? Because the thing is, these are more. Um, tens of millions of dollars. U.S.? Yeah. Okay. And I'm pretty sure those people that own one of these condos here, they own more than one. Most likely. So the, there's actually two very different Taiwans. There's the guy that owns the business, and then there's the guy that works in the business. The guy that owns the business is shopping for his third Bentley. And the guy that works in the business is trying to enjoy his seven ping apartment. That imbalance does not lead to a win for a nation. And that, that's very dangerous. Now for us gold carters coming in, we see this. We, we come from places that also have imbalances, but they're not that pronounced. When you see that here, you see that somebody's working six days a week. Uh, they get calls from their boss whenever. Uh, they also have no personal life. B basically everything you see in Japan unfolding is coming here. There's no if, there's just when. Taiwan was a colony of Japan for 50 years. Correct. And a lot of the mentality <laughs> is still steeped here. You need to make that change. That change doesn't happen overnight. But what does happen overnight is you put the, you put the framework in place. You start having the conversations. You start deploying things, not just for looks, not just for mienze. Mm -hmm. Face. You're deploying them for the future. And that's, I think, another thing that is missing with some groups here. Everybody's worried about today. They're not worried about tomorrow. They're not worried about the next generation. You know, th th there's a saying where I come from that a society survives when old men plant seeds of trees they will never see grow. Beautiful. I, I don't see that here, unfortunately, with a lot of people. It's just get rich quick, doesn't matter how, and probably jet out of here. Mm. Yeah, so I don't disagree with you about any of these underlying issues at all, actually. I'm just wondering what the solution is. Well, you got a group of talented people that you brought in. There's still some of them remaining here. Harness them. Give them an opportunity to have a conversation and dialogue with the people that they want to. Connect them with the ministries that they need to be connected with. Connect them with the businesses they need to be connected with. Some baseline standards even are missing. G going back to the value of the individual within a company. Why would a gold carter that comes in as a senior manager or a senior engineer want to work at TSMC here for $50,000 a year, which is allowed by local standards, but it's less than a fifth of what they would in the US. I don't understand why. No gold carter would do that. It's insane. And guess what? All the engineers that are good, that are Taiwanese, are getting offers in China. They're getting offers in other countries. They're getting offers in the US and they're leaving. So fast forward this tape. What, what, what do you end up with in this movie? You end up with malignant mediocrity. And that trends to zero. So I think the government realized that. So they want to bring in foreign national talents and then not give them jobs so they can stay here, not give them opportunities to build industries here, not give them opportunities to mesh and integrate. The fact that you're still calling them foreigners is a problem because that means that they're temporary. So that, that's where the conversation needs to shift. You're saying, we're bringing these people in. They're one of us now and stand behind that. And it's not just about, okay, it's, it's, it's a problem to open a bank account here. You do that, it's, it's a pain, you, you get through it, you got that scar, super. But it's a myriad of other things that 
all these little inconveniences that don't need to exist there because they don't really exist in other places and not and if they do they're not so compounded that make the value proposition here just unpalatable for anybody that has options and anybody includes the gold carters it includes other people that come here through other visas and also includes the capable local homegrown taiwanese if they have an option they leave that's the problem you identify the problem now what's the solution it's a small place make changes what worked 60 years ago in a manufacturing society that it's all about neurotic cost cutting doesn't work in this day and age yeah where to start oh i know where to start let's call up the um ndc actually no let's call let's go straight to the top i would just call the president's office and uh ask miss tai ingwen we are calling you out right now if you'd like to come speak with us John Groper is here. He's waiting for your phone call. What would you say to Miss Tsai Ing-wen? I don't think she has many years left on her term, so. Well, you know, uh, every person in life doesn't know how many years they have, period. So it doesn't matter how many years you have. What matters is what you do with them. What would you like her to do? I would like to sit down in a room with her and understand what her pressure points are in this society. And I would like to have a conversation and say this is what's been experienced by the gold card people can we address these issues i'm sure we can who do we need to um task with each individual item and you know what before you know it that general plan became specific action points and solvable action points yeah i it i feel like it's very difficult Taiwan's administration, I believe, are the architects behind the bilingual 2030 as well, which might bear a lot of similarities to what we're talking about here with the gold card initiative. Um, and I think they actually overlap quite a bit. But the same could be said, of course, with a deep discussion about the bilingual 2030. The detractors will say that it's nothing more than a PR stunt, you know, that it's a kind of a political maneuvering, that there's not actually any substantive action towards that. You know what? There's always going to be detractors. I tend to tune them out. My first lawyer, actually, in the U.S., I had a nice business lawyer. He's a 350-pound guy named Ron. Maybe he's listening to this. I don't know. What's up, Ron? Very very smart <laughs> Italian guy. Just He introduced me to the term ne'er-do-well. Ne'er-do-well. So, you know what? Never do well. Okay, yes. Don't pay them any mind because, you know what? They're not doing anything anyhow. So, if you're in a mission to do something and improve something, those are the least of your concern. So you say, Jiao to Tsai uh, Ing-wen with the bilingual 2030. Well, I think it's something that's necessary. You know, when you go into the um, motor vehicles department in the U.S. or even in uh, Germany, those forums come in multiple languages. Uh, some might even say too many languages, but it's there to accommodate people. The approach of, hey, you should get a uh, local girlfriend or a local boyfriend to help you out with the forums and uh, day-to-day convenient life here is... Not really a solution. That, that's taking a state problem and privatizing it. Yeah, it's a temporary solution, but it's not very sustainable. And Especially for a governmental initiative, because that's how I got most of my stuff done. I'm oh lucky, yeah. but, and I think a lot of my gold car friends. And uh, that's the other thing also. A lot of these gold car people are accomplished where they come from. They, guess what? <laughs> they can get a driver's license by themselves if they choose to. But when, when you're driven to that infant state that you're essentially helpless... You, know, you have a doctorate's degree, you uh, go to court, you set up a company, you get a company bought out, you rinse, repeat, but now you can't even get a uh, driver's license. What's wrong with you? But guess what? It's really not you. You came to a new place. I didn't know a lot of English when I came to the U.S. I got a law degree there later. You know why? Because the environment fostered that. Mm. Well, to be fair, you were there when you were young. 
but I didn't start off with English. Right. But do you think if you had moved here to Taiwan when you were young, you would obviously be speaking Chinese fluently now? I don't know about that. Uh, mm. I have some uh, gold car friends and uh, they were telling me about uh, their experiences. They actually had to go back to the countries they came from because uh, their kids were considered uh, secondary citizens in the school system. They literally were told, if we have room for you after the locals, you can introduce your kids to our school system. If not, good luck. Okay. You tell that to somebody, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to leave. Yeah, the education system needs quite a bit of work, that's for sure. But these are all simple things to fix. You know, it's you have an edict coming from above saying if you have somebody in a school district, they're in a school district. There's no differentiation, especially more so in a decreasing population. An edict coming from above. Do you think Taiwan should be more like their neighbors across the straits? I'm not touching that. I thought that was a softball question. <laughs> I mean, but seriously, though, I'm just wondering because, you know, that is what sets Taiwan apart, obviously, which is this thriving democracy in many ways. It's very messy, for sure, which is perhaps a sign of how much it is thriving. Meanwhile, on the other hand, let's say, on the other hand, you know, there are other kind of political systems where, you know, uh, power is more concentrated into a central authority and they can get things done quicker, right? Look, Do you if, think if, that's if you part have, of Taiwan's problem? If you have a billion people, sure, get a central authority and knock yourself out with uh, multiple layers of bureaucracy. When you have a couple tens of millions, maybe streamline things a little bit. And as far as uh, comparing to China, I'll, I'll bite on that. How oh, many China? What? Yeah. <laughs> How many foreign professionals do you have in Taiwan versus just in Shanghai or in Shizhou or in Hangzhou, which are secondary tertiary cities? Well, Shanghai is pretty good. Oh, Shanghai. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hangzhou, Shizhou. Hangzhou, Shizhou, yeah. So those people went there for a reason. You know, they had a opportunity better where they came from. It has nothing to do with uh, who's in charge and what they're doing. It has to do with the professional opportunities that that individual that decided to go from Sweden or Germany to Hangzhou said, this is a better situation for me, at least for now. So why don't you go to China, Mr. Gropper? Uh, I, I visited. It's, uh, it's nice, but no, thank you. <laughs> right. That's where we started this journey. You were actually in Shanghai when you had heard about the gold card program. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you never lived there, right? Uh, no, I, I was traveling quite a bit. I um, actually started in uh, Korea. Then I uh, visited China, Cambodia. Um, Vietnam, then uh, Thailand, Indonesia, Japan. Hmm, okay. So I, I, I did the full circuit. Yeah, you got around. Yeah. I tried to um, look at different business opportunities, different scenarios that would also work better for me personally. Okay, so yeah, I'm curious, you know, having done the kind of roundabout in Asia and seeing Taiwan very deeply, you know, these issues, the obvious question is, why are you still here? And do you think you will be here, you know, much longer? And why didn't you find better opportunities in any of these other Asian countries? Uh, I wouldn't say that I didn't find better opportunities. Uh, right now I'm here. I put a lot of my ideas into writing that got published on professional outlets like Commonwealth, some other outlets like Taiwan News and um, Be Next. And one of those articles actually covers um, Vietnam, which I think is a really interesting place from a business perspective, as well as uh, culturally and politically. It's growing aggressively. Mm -hmm. uh, another one is uh, Cambodia, if you really like the wild, wild east. Uh, Thailand is another interesting destination. You, you just have to pick your scenario and what works for you. Taiwan has potential, but potential is not enough. I've put my thoughts into writing. We've issued our um, request for the presidential office now. 
I guess I'm just going to have to wait a little bit and uh, see what happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'd love to get a group of gold carters to come in and actually have a conversation that's beyond a photo shoot. Because mm-hmm. uh, I was actually invited to that. but um, The original photo shoot? Yes. Yeah, right. I, I was about to say that when we were talking earlier. You know, Tai Ingwen is, I remember the photo of her with the kind of inaugural class, right? Of yeah. Gold Carters. So I was supposed to be there, but um, I had a, a previous engagement, unfortunately. But I would love to, in all seriousness, I would love to sit down with her, her advisors, and uh, Gold Carters that have been here. Uh, maybe even somebody from the Gold Card office, just... Uh, to refine their marketing. But I think that's where that, I, I think the Gold Court office, again, just call it a marketing department. That makes sense. After that, you need to use the people that you brought in that decided to cast their lot with you and say, I'm going to be here. I'm putting my talent, my time, and my resources here. Make all these work for you, work for me, work for you. So what is it about Taiwan that you do like? And why are you still here despite all of these seemingly kind of intractable problems, this Sisyphean kind of feat, it <laughs> seems like. I was actually about to ask if you are a, a masochist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that might just be it. <laughs> that would explain everything. But, you know, despite all of these things, why are you still here? What kind of keeps you here? You obviously, you have the resources, you have the ability to be anywhere around the world. Why kind of stick it out and and fight, you know, and try to make this place a better place, which again, yeah, you're right, which is the original impetus of the Gold Card program, which is to make the country better, right? So the first uh, few years, I was really gung-ho about it, but it all fell deaf ears. Right now, I'm at the point that uh, I'm looking at uh, other options because I do have other countries and uh, other um, politicians from those countries that are actually inviting me into their programs. You know, it's like dating. Yeah, that was another of your articles. If that's not going to be your wife, that's okay, but you got to move on. Is Taiwan good at dating, but not good at long-term <laughs> relationships? What is the answer to that question? Well, what's your impression? Is Taiwan good at dating, but not good at long-term relationships? You know, I think certain types of people tend to be here. Uh, we kind of alluded to it before, but just quite simply, from my experience, the gold carters who are still here... Before, there were a lot of COVID, you know, refugees, so to speak. And then after that, I think many of the ones that I know who are still here, the vast majority of them have some kind of relationship, a literal relationship, you know, to Taiwan. They have a a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend, and that's why they are here. So ironically, that's (laughs) my biggest experience with gold card people or with people who are very gung-ho or perhaps even more extremely defensive of Taiwan or people who have some kind of vested interest here, perhaps relationship-wise. So So they're basically just uh, anchored down here like hostages. And then cognitive dissonance sets in and everything is good and everything is uh, copacetic. Okay. Some people can settle. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing, actually. Going back to this uh, article, is it good at dating versus uh, long-term relationships? If um, you're a international coming in, you don't have the old family connections. You don't have the business connections. You're coming in blank. What's your opportunity here? Notice the silence? Yeah. Where is it? So that's perfect for the new gold car marketing office. They can just market that. The silence? <laughs> well, I, I think they're, they are trying to attract entrepreneurs now, which uh, unfortunately I don't understand it. You know, I, I thought I was decently intelligent, but when I heard that, I just, that did not compute. 
what I was alluding to before was like just maybe more honesty about Taiwan, right? And about the situation. I just feel like the gold car office has to play catch up in a lot of ways. The policy is out and then they just have to kind of try to fill all these holes while you're trying to create something as well. And I'm skeptical of how well they're going to be able to do this. Even staying afloat, I think, is kind of a difficult thing, but doing so in perhaps very murky waters, right? We alluded to kind of geopolitical things as well, right? Even even simpler. Go, let's go back to the uh, leaky um, bucket analogy. They're not even taking their finger and putting it in the hole. What they, are they doing with their finger? They're just saying everything is fine. Everything is fine. There are no holes. Correct. And um, that water, those gold carters just go through the hole and go somewhere else. Where you go, they don't know. Was that part of your kind of idea about writing these things as well, which is, you know, kind of bringing attention to this, perhaps provoking these kind of conversations? Do you think that this is a very important step in this direction, which is provoking those discussions? If, you know, something needs a push, you might need to push it. I think the conversations uh, need to be had, and I think the conversations need to be genuine. Uh, they shouldn't be doctored. Uh, they shouldn't be manicured, and they shouldn't use selective data. The fact that you hear from the gold card office, which is supposed to represent the gold carders, without the gold card office actually talking to gold carders, I think is interesting. So if I'm a politician in charge of funding for the gold card office or for the initiative or just reading whatever reports are coming out, you know what? It's always good to go back to the origin and go look at what's coming off of the assembly line. You know, your manager is telling you you got 10,000 cars out, but you go look outside in the lot and you see tumbleweed. Might want to check up on some stuff. Mm. So you think it's better to just bypass the gold card office and go straight to the NDC, or you're still just waiting for that phone call from Tsai Ing-wen? Going back to the analogy and the reality that Taiwan is a small place like Israel. My dad told me when uh, he was in the military in Israel, he served with a lot of people that end up being um, uh, ministers, actually prime ministers. Not one, more than one, because it's a small place. And they were all fighting for the same cause. They were all doing the same thing. They were building a country. And they weren't shying about it. I think that's a very close parallel to what's going on here. So you have the ability to reach the right people. They're on this island. I drove around this island. It took me three days. It shouldn't be that hard. So if I want to go talk to the president, if she deems it worthwhile, I'd love to. If somebody at the um, NDC decides that maybe they want to have a conversation... I buy them a cup of coffee. We do that. If it's a mayor, if it's a minister, there's so many people that are interested in vested parties in this process, but they don't hear from us. They should, unless they don't want to, which is okay. Then I'll just be like that water in that bucket and go somewhere else. And that that's a shame. But at the end of the day, who's losing more? Me or Taiwan? What if that is the sad reality that this is all a charade, Potemkin village? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, so uh, I'm, mm. a, I'm eternally optimistic. So I'm going to mm. assume it's not. Mm. You're here till the very end, till the, <laughs> till the bucket sinks. Uh, th th this is not the hill I die on, but you know right. what? It's, um, I put my thoughts into writing. I put them in professional outlets. I know they've been read by people that are consequential to this. I put it in their court now. So if the answer is silence, nothing, that's an answer. Just like any negotiation, just like any reality. No answer is an answer. Right. I value them more and I value this place more to think that's going to be the answer though. Despite it all, <laughs> you are an optimistic masochist. I, I, I'm not a masochist. You know, for me, <laughs> uh, I get on a plane. If I'm going to go to the beach, I'll go to the beach. If I'm going to get a hot dog in New York, I'll go on a plane and do that. I'm not stuck here. I, I don't have any anchors and I'm not a hostage. 
well, you do have a you do have a Hummer. I have an anchor. You do have an anchor. <laughs> it's a pretty heavy anchor. I like it though. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty impressive. We were talking about that before coming on here. How is it like driving a Hummer on these wild Taiwan streets with scooters zipping in and out everywhere? <laughs> how have you not killed someone yet? So or how uh, has someone not killed you? <laughs> well, I, I learned. Because you know, that's on the news every single day. Oh, I, I've seen that, yeah. Yeah. TVBS, I, I keep seeing that. It's <laughs> fascinating. Yep, Taiwan Xingmen. I, I understand half of it, but yeah, it's fascinating to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what I learned actually, uh, number one rule of the road in Taiwan is uh, size matters. And mm, in my case, um, Texas. Yeah. In my case, I'm pretty big. Mm. So outside of a bus, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good on the road. So you might have killed some people. It's just nah. left them behind. No, no. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was, I was asking you that, but I'll just ask you on the air. Like, what? What? Where were you? Where was your mind? Why? <laughs> why would you ever buy a Hummer here in Taiwan? Well, I, I had one in the U.S. and I loved it. The moment I sold it, I regretted selling it. I was uh, car shopping here. I was actually looking at a uh, convertible, mm. which makes sense. You know, it fits yeah. everywhere and literally everywhere. Uh, but then I came across a Hummer that reminded me of the one that I had. Mm. So uh, nostalgia. Nostalgia. It gets the best of us. Yep. <laughs> so in my case, I was a uh, yeah, five-ton Hummer. Oh, my goodness. Are there a lot of Hummers here? I've uh, seen a few, but... Not too many. I think there's about eight on the island. So Are far. there? Because I, I can You're tell one you, of eight. I can literally tell you where the white one is in uh, Shindian. <laughs> I can tell you that uh, Ame has a uh, yellow Hummer. Uh, the black one, that's me. That's you. That's okay. me. You see Everyone me knows now. Yeah, there the you go. black Hummer. It's out. Secret's out. The secret is out. And is it like heavily tinted? <laughs> of course. It is, of course. <laughs> yeah. That's Taiwan style. You got to heavily tint that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's hot. It's hot. I but like it. You're allowed to. You know, because in the States, that wouldn't be legal. But you can pretty <laughs> much just tint the heck out of here. Well, you know, you can do a lot of things with uh, vehicles here. You can't do over there. Um, I can put a um, red and blue light, the flashes in the front. Apparently, that's a thing. Oh, true. Yeah. Neon is very popular here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm always freaking out that, like, a cop is behind me. Because, like, red and blue lights, it's a it's a thing. Oh, you know, for, first Everywhere. time I had that here, uh, <laughs> I thought it was getting pulled over. I just kept slowing down. The cops kept slowing down as well. And just, I figured, you know what? I guess I'm not getting pulled over after three miles. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, another uh, interesting experience with flashing um, red and blue lights here mm. uh, on the highway in the U.S. If you have a um, police vehicle, if you're driving faster than they are, 100% getting pulled over. Here, it's more like an accessory vehicle just going with you. You want to pass it, pass it. No problem. That's hilarious. Yeah. It's so true. When I was first here, and I also had a driver's license uh, story, but anyway, when I finally got my driver's license, yeah, at first I was, you know, kind of reticent when I see a police <laughs> officer, but now I just ignore them because it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm still feeling that out, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's well, really you got a black Hummer, so yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit less conspicuous. <laughs> you know, I, I never got people sending me pictures of my truck on Instagram. As okay. I'm driving it. Right. Repeatedly. Not yet. Not yet. No, it, but it happened. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you have gotten that. I, I had that happen multiple oh, times. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a problem, being so big. Ch change the uh, plates. Yeah, exactly. 
So yeah, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and put that behind us now. What about your favorite places in Asia? You know, so you did have a chance to go around. What are your thoughts about Asia in general? I know you're obviously interested in business and entrepreneurship. I saw some of your articles with your interest in blockchain and NFTs and other kind of things. I don't know if you're still interested in those things, but yeah, what kind of interesting things have you been discovering here in Asia? For me, it's actually it's, uh, one of the most difficult questions somebody asked me. Uh, what's your favorite? insert blank here mm. fill, fill in the blank you know if it's uh if it's food if it's um if it's a movie if it's a location it all depends on what what you're trying to accomplish what your mood is and where your headspace is so i don't have an answer to what's my favorite because i don't have a favorite i like different places for different reasons uh, you know in taiwan i have a great group of uh friends that i've made i think the people are very genuine i truly enjoy them but reality is anywhere you go, pretty much you can find a good group of people because it's it's who you attract. It's not just who you stumble upon. So if you're somebody that's interesting, if you're somebody that's uh, inviting, guess what? There's going to be people around you. But I do think people here are extremely uh, nice, extremely helpful. Actually, um, the other day I was driving from uh, Taichung to Taipei, uh, stopped at uh, Formosa. Here you go. Here's a story. Uh, mm -hmm. Stopped at Formosa a gas station. I have my uh, CTBC card. Mm -hmm. Your bank card. Yeah. Apparently you don't take those. Hmm. Okay. I didn't, I didn't know, know that. that. Yeah. Yeah, because th there's no English option on the self-fill. Some hapless bystander saw that, felt bad for me that I'm sitting there for 15 minutes trying to figure things out with my phone and just translating. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, he was surprised also that uh, this card is not taken there. Mm, yeah, that's uh, a big bank. Yeah, local bank. Right. I took my Amex out. Uh, that's not accepted in the self-service, but if I go to a service pump, that's accepted. But the CTBC still wasn't accepted. Correct. Whoa, that's weird. Right? So little things like that banking and i was actually ahead of time but 25 minutes later trying to get gas mm, little things little right, things right 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 so you are living in taichung now uh, i'm all over you're all over the place yeah we just we can only find you in the hummer that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's the only place we can count on finding you and just warm up the satellite you'll see me running around. right right yeah. right <laughs> so let's imagine that this Taiwan dream ends for better or worse. One side of the relationship or other might cut it off. That happens, right? Breakups happen. So if that happens, where would your next destination possibly be in Asia if you were to move on to another country in Asia? Are there any, you had mentioned Vietnam being a very interesting place um, and you talked about Cambodia a bit too. Are either of those viable options? I have some network and have some um, colleagues in um, Vietnam. I think that would be an interesting option. I think it wouldn't be my first choice for um, my personal preferences. I think if things didn't work out in uh, Taiwan, I'd probably go and uh, recover in Thailand. Mm. Yeah, we were just talking about that. You were just there recently? Yeah, I go to Thailand pretty often. Okay, nice. Thailand, not Taiwan, Thailand. Correct. Bangkok. Okay. <laughs> this is not CNN. So yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. New Year's one. Did Correct. You? Yeah. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> what about Thailand? What do you think about Thailand? I love Thailand as well. I also came from there recently. I took a little trip there. So what do you like about it? Uh, it's a beautiful place. has a very good value proposition for a lot of people. You know, if you want to be a backpacker, live on a budget, you can do that and you can survive there. Uh, you want to have a six-star experience, you can do that too. People are very accommodating. It's a very easygoing environment. Level of service, level of um, offerings across the board, unfortunately, are a higher value than Taiwan right now. You know, uh, Taiwan is also trying to uh, reinvigorate its uh, tourism business. But so far, it's just been kind of a circular economy. People from the north go to the south. People from the south go to the north. That not a tourism industry make. And uh, then just trying to get 
Japanese tourists in. Uh, one thing that I found out, I don't know if it's still the case or not, but did you know that uh, Japanese tourists get a um, get some pocket money from the Taiwanese government to come here, but Taiwanese that go to Japan do not? Hold on, say that again. Japanese get pocket money from who? Taiwanese government. From the Taiwanese government to come yeah. here. It's not a lot, but it's you know it's a gesture. That reminds me of a other recent story about um, what is it? The end of year. There is a uh, some kind of subsidy going on maybe it's a chinese new year thing that they are offering from to, the government right from the taiwanese government not, not for gold carters though they right. don't get them no but, gold carters i think no arc people but they are offering it to foreign diplomats correct which is beautiful because you know they, they need the money so exactly and, and because they pay taxes mm -hmm. and don't have diplomatic immunity correct <laughs> i didn't know that about japan yeah. wow what is this that's crazy uh, it, I think just, I'm going to use my Japanese passport <laughs> and collect should. some of that money. <laughs> well, it's just a, it's an outreach program. You know, it's it's a good attempt, but it needs to be part of a larger framework. You know, my, my biggest um, gripe with uh, my friends know, know this. I compare the hospitality industry in uh, Thailand to Taiwan. I can stay at the uh, Sofitel in Bangkok, five-star hotel, excellent breakfast, nice room, for the same amount that a three-star hotel in downtown Taipei would charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hotels here are, yeah. They need some standards. They need some updating. And you go to Korea. A lot of these hotels would not exist in Korea just because Korean government would say, this is not the image that we want for Korea. We don't want somebody coming in from um, from Spain and saying, oh my God, this hotel I stayed in. You know, uh, France has that. French don't care. They have Nice. You can go into a little, uh, to a little matchbox for $500 a night and they think it's okay. But everybody that goes there says never again. Hmm. But they're French. They don't care. Uh but that, that's the thing, you know, here you see that people want to do something. They, they want to offer. They want to experience. But they're missing either the enabling component or the spark. And you know what? If you didn't have that here locally, that's why you invited internationals to maybe impute that, mm. share a little bit. And it's, it's not a messiah complex. It's just it's a different set of experiences. That's what you're bringing in. You're bringing in a Canadian, you're bringing in an American, you're bringing in a Spaniard, you're bringing in a British person, you bring in an Australian. And you say to them, hey, what do you think of this hotel? They're going to come up with totally different answers. But they're all valid. You, you don't negate the American because he's an American or because he's uh, apparently he's bad to be white now. So apparently because he's white and American, that's a bad thing. That's his experience. You can't negate that and say it's less important, more important than somebody else. You need to listen to all these voices if you're the, in that scenario, if you're in charge of hotels in Taiwan. Price gouging is a thing. Lack of service standards is a thing. Lack of updates is a thing. You have Koreans going to Kenting and seeing uh, Instagram, but then they go to the hotel and they're saying, and I know this because I have Korean friends actually mentioned this to me, you wouldn't believe what we paid $400 a night for. And guess what? They're not coming back. And you know who's not coming back? They're friends. So if the hotel manager doesn't care about that because they only care about $400, which I hope is not the case, then somebody in the tourism bureau should say, this is a problem on a few different levels, which we need to resolve. I don't know how that's going to happen though. Well, I'm not in tourism, but I know people that are. Mm. And uh, actually, in the Gold Card program, there's um, actually a couple individuals that I know that used to run five and six star hotels, and they're still here. Hmm. They haven't found a good place to deploy their skill set, and it's a shame. And mm. they're still trying hard to find things to do. And can you imagine how a person that comes from a five-star hotel in Sweden managing that property, all of a sudden they find themselves in Taiwan in the Gold Card program, and maybe... Maybe run a BNB in Elon. They're not going to stay here. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, how can Taiwan ever compete on that international level? You know, you're kind of comparing it to Thailand, but I don't know how it can compete. Maybe we need to legalize marijuana here. <laughs> Is that what you're getting at? 
Uh, I think that's where you're getting at. <laughs> <laughs> that might be what I'm getting at. You know what? You need to look at your strengths. If uh, you have so Bing Lang, Bing the, Lang. the red. Uh... Yeah, no, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> if you have a volcano, you probably don't want to make it into a ski resort. So look at your strengths and mm. apply your strengths, not your weaknesses. Don't try to be something you're not. What are those strengths in Taiwan? What could Taiwan capitalize on to be able to have these kind of five-star resorts? You know, people like to go, from the little bit that I know, people like to go um, scuba diving here. I think in terms of um, oceanic pollution, some areas around Taiwan are not that bad, actually. And uh, I hear a lot of people actually rave within those circles about different areas where they can go swim with the fish. Me, personally, I don't want to swim with the fish. I like pools. I don't want to be in the ocean. I feel like a bath toy if I do that. So... <laughs> If I, if I see How the bottom, I'm okay. Israel has some amazing scuba diving in the Red Sea. Uh, they do. Yeah. But they also have an uh, aquarium that goes down in the water, and you can see the fish without getting wet. So that's all good. I did From that. there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and they also have uh, some marines you can do that in. True. And uh, glass-bottom boats. I did those. Mm, okay. So you can have those here. Right. So that's what they need to do. Taiwan. You need to pick and choose your battles. If you look at Korea, they have Jeju Island, but they mm -hmm. don't try to market it as an international destination. Why? Because Thailand has that covered. Uh, you look at Okinawa. It's a regional destination. But again, Thailand is an international destination. You don't necessarily want to compete with Thailand, but you can definitely compete regionally because you have Koreans that want to see other places and they're not within the budget of traveling to Europe or traveling to the U.S. So they go to Japan. They can come to Taiwan. No reason why not. Mm -hmm. they, they go to Vietnam, they go to Japan, Taiwan's right there. Hmm. I need to talk to those hotel people because I just don't see it making economic sense here anyways. I mean, even building that infrastructure, I just don't think it's sustainable here. Uh, are you telling me the taxes are so heavy that um, they have to charge 400 a night? Uh, are you telling me the employees are so expensive or the towels that I'm not getting so hard to come by? Yeah, I think it's just part and parcel of the whole. It's a very big conversation in terms of real estate here, which is another big one. You know, some of these places are actually, uh, the land is owned by the government. So people actually apply for proposals to build something on it. So you'd be surprised some of the subsidies or they've been in the family for a long time. So they're not buying this. Exactly. Yeah. Like as you mentioned, you know, with this uh, apartment over here, if wealth is concentrated into a few of those hands, if those subsidies are going to the same companies or families, you know, there's not really an incentive for things to change. So I just I don't know how that change can happen. You know, I think actually um, directing that conversation a little bit into uh, real estate, actually, I think that that's a that's an interesting thing to hit upon. Definitely. I don't understand why the prices are so high here outside of it, in essence, just being a Ponzi. Uh, I understand that the locals get a lot of incentives in terms of uh, mortgages, very attractive rates, uh, very attractive uh, durations. Uh, by the way, gold carters don't get those. Uh, we're considered uh, high risk because I was looking in the U.S. I own. I've never really rented in my life. Came here. Now I'm a tenant. I'm, I'm, I'm not used to that. I was looking at properties that I want to, to buy because initially I'm, remember, I'm optimistically naive and apparently I'm uh, also uh, masochistic. masochistic. Definitely. So I was uh, shopping for places, looking around, and I'm noticing these prices, and I'm noticing what I'm getting offered. Mm. So outside of that experience, here's something that, for example, in my mind, something that somebody in the government should be saying, you know what, that's been going on long enough, we probably should stop that. You know what that is? Overestimating your size. Uh, the government size. No, no, no. Oh. Um, real estate property size. You purchase a 60 ping property, but 20 of those pings are make-believe. You know, if it's a balcony you can't access, if it's, uh, it's a common space law, part of the elevator. Mm -hmm. And the place that I rented is actually even more comical. Outside, they had uh, these huge glass awnings. Oddly, there were about one ping each, 10 of those. 
the uh, landlord purchased a 60 ping property. 10 of those pings were outside covered by glass. In the U.S. and the West, that's, that's criminal. That's fraud. Here, it's okay. It's accepted. Something like that sends a very bad message to anybody that's looking to ingrain themselves in Taiwanese society. Mm. Yeah, it's difficult. I think Taiwanese know these problems. I think Taiwanese citizens are not happy about this situation at all. But I don't think anything has happened, nor do I think anything will. I'm not optimistic that anything will happen. The government is always trying, I think, to enact different kind of legislation to combat that. But what Taiwanese citizens are actually really good at is finding those loopholes as well, right? In terms of, you know, not being able, for example, to turn around to basically flip a house, you know, within five years. But there's always a workaround. And it's like a it's like a constant cat and mouse game. Well, I think I think that was actually going back to uh, the previous president when there was uh, some warming up of cross rate relations, mm, and a lot of a lot of Chinese came in here and started buying properties because they figured this is a safer place for their money. But as the Chinese typically do in any economy they go to, they artificially upset the locals out of the market. Happened in Canada. Canada's another small place. A lot of Chinese went in, bought in different cities, and made it utterly unaffordable for Canadians. Vancouver, Toronto especially. Difference is uh, Canadian salaries are livable. Taiwanese salaries, on the other hand, not really. That's why you need to have these long-term mortgages with very little money down and very low interest rates that are subsidized to keep these workers in a house eventually, or at this point, maybe a couple, two workers in a house. But again, the, the size and options that are afforded to them are just going back to the mental health issue. There, there's a study that was done, I think it was in the 60s. The minimum size per person, I think it was about 600 square feet or so, 650 square feet that a person needs to, in essence, not go batshit crazy. And here the term is coffin apartments. So these people are people, guess what? They get pressurized, they get depressed. They get a whole slew of issues that are unnecessary if there was a minimal standard of what is considered habitable. You know, Airbnb is illegal here. Magically, if you go on Airbnb, you can still see an apartment. Well, you can see a rental. You know what that rental is? It's a tent on a rooftop for a thousand NT a night. I guess it's the urban glamping experience. Or if you go on a rooftop here and you see a lot of uh, illegal construction. Okay, sure. I'm not touching that one, but it's a small place. Again, not a lot of people. Again, can be regulated. Everybody would be happier with that. Otherwise, it's just, it's continuous compromising all the way to the bottom. Hong Kong has that issue as well, right? The coffin apartments. Uh, in Probably much worse than here. Uh, equally worse. You know, I've, I've seen, I've been to Hong Kong. I've had friends up at the peak. I've had friends in other places in the city. I've seen everything you can see on that lifestyle. It goes from crazy to, to crazy. And yeah, those people have exhibited the same mental issues, the same mental distress. And I'm sure you've seen the pictures where you can rent, rent a bunk in what looks like a chicken coop. Mm -hmm. That's not okay. That's not, that's inhumane. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, don't you think that this is a problem everywhere? I mean, same with like, you know, the inner city in the in the States. Oh, abso the absolutely not. No, in the U.S., you have so many agencies on a city, on a municipal, on a county, on a state, on a federal level that look out for the tenant so much more than uh, they should. And even... You think everyone's taken care of in the States? <sighs> you know, people that know the system get taken care of. So the people who don't get taken care of don't know the system. Pretty much. But you will never find a tiny apartment like that. The worst thing that I've seen was an illegal sale down the Jersey Shore, and it was about 400 square feet. And uh, that was basically an option to purchase next to a two-bedroom. But you're not going to find a seven-ping apartment 
well, you'll just find homeless tent camps uh, well. sprawled around. So I think that's less than seven ping, but to not, be fair. You're not working uh, 10, 12 hours a day to afford that. Big yeah. difference. I mean, you're, you're done. <laughs> you're not working when you're in those homeless camps, right? That, that, that's a totally different, uh, that's a different conversation altogether. Mm. Mm. But over here, when you're working and the best you can do is seven ping, nine ping, and you're eating just carbs and sugars and fats to sustain yourself, that's an existence that could be improved and doesn't take that much to improve it significantly. Mm. Yeah, I actually want to speak to a journalist who covers minimum wage. To me, this sounds like an issue of minimum wage because Clearly, you're not talking about like larger kind of social things like homelessness or other things, but you're talking about people who are gainfully employed but still have to stay in a small place, right? Do you think it's a minimum wage thing? And if not, how else could you solve that? So here, yeah, minimum wage is definitely uh, minimal. And I think people, are, well, employees are pretty much uh, banking on their uh, year-end bonuses, Chinese New Year, coming in to at least give them some, basically reinvigorate their wallets a little bit. But, you know, it's, it's not a solution. It doesn't create a, a life. It's a lifestyle. It's just bobbing above the water. And it's not good. It's not a way to live. When you look at uh, companies like uh, Evergreen, where recently they, I think it's almost like a um, bleep measuring contest for some of these CEOs to see just what bonus they can give and if it's bigger than somebody else's. But that concept is just mind boggling to me. If uh, you work in the shipping department of the company and you get a uh, 45 month bonus, but you work at the airline, you get one, one and a half months. What do you think is going to happen in that airline? Everybody's baggage is going to get lost. I mean, does nobody sit in a C-level office in a suite and say, hmm, this might be a bad idea? Or say, hey, how about instead of giving these insane bonuses, let's actually give a good salary all across, give a decent bonus and reinvest this in, oh, I don't know, mental health for our employees, better benefits for employees, uh, dividends, give them some longevity. I'm trying to understand what happens pragmatically. You work at a company, you get a 45-month bonus. Where does it go from there? Next year, you get 40 months. You're pissed. So what, is a company going to get 50 months next year? That's not sustainable. And are you going to send the same message? It doesn't make any sense. We need a evergreen CEO here as well. You have a, we have a long list of people to talk to. I mean, these are just questions. I'm just asking <laughs> questions. Yeah, I mean, they're valid questions, but I'm just thinking that these are individual companies who have their own kind of imperatives. I just don't know how, how to solve that. But these know, are also other... publicly listed companies. So mm -hmm. there's some standards that they have to abide by. So right. how does that apply to shareholders? I'm, I'm actually legitimately curious about this. Right. Yeah, I don't think the shareholders care. They don't care or they don't have, any, don't have a place to base their opinion? Probably both. I mean, I would, how do you change that? Any, any and every shareholder is going to care that all of a sudden you paid one employee for the, uh, the price. You paid two for the price of one. That's not a good business decision. It's happening. So that's what I'm saying. How do you, how do you solve that? Other than going in and figuring out who the board is of each single company and you know, trying to analyze why they make these decisions, comparing it to like China Airlines as well and any other big companies. And a lot of these companies, you're right, are kind of seemingly one-upping each other on the size of their bonuses. But these are just individual companies. I don't know how we can compel them or like, you know, how a government other than one with a edict from the top can actually compel these companies to act better when, as we are saying, the shareholders obviously are not doing anything, right? So whatever is that reason, you know, they're not. In the US, I'm pretty sure a regulator would sit there and say, huh, this company made so much Okay, well, what are they charging their uh, customer base? Is there some overcharging going on? Is there 
something else afoot. It just, it, it, things like that don't make sense. It doesn't cause stability in a market. It doesn't cause stability in a, in a nation. It's just a, a quick blip for some personal gain, personal ego for, I mean, maybe, maybe the tax law that they're under uh, mandates that they give out all their profits. Maybe that's even half their profits. I have no idea, but I, I really would love to know. I think that's a really interesting uh, thing to dig into. Mm, right. About how they, how this can happen how this can work. It doesn't make sense to you. Uh, it doesn't make sense to you? Oh, I think it does make sense. It's very Taiwanese. Tell me. Tell me. It's very Taiwanese. I'm, I'm new here. I'm, I'm on a gold card. I don't know anything. Tell me. <laughs> but you're the expert and you're the one who wants Taiwan's ear, you know? So for my perspective on what mm. I know, part of me knowing is me asking questions. I don't understand this. I'd love mm. to understand this. Well, that's what I'm saying. We need to get the CEO of Evergreen and their board of directors. But just knowing how, you know, these boards work, it's not a surprise to me. I mean, this is how a lot of Asia works. This is how a lot of conglomerates, most conglomerates, I think, in Asia work, in China as well, in Taiwan, in Korea, in Japan. It's It doesn't work like it does in the West. You know, I've, I've seen companies in Korea. I've seen companies in China. Mm. I didn't see this. The chaebol in Korea, which are the family conglomerates, uh, like, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and China, you know, they're all they're all state-run organizations, right? Anyways, so they definitely have free reign to do that as well if they so please. So what you're saying is we got uh, Taiwanese chaebols, of course, okay. yeah, of course, of course, yeah. So the family-run so businesses are extremely important, and copying these from Japan as well from that colonial legacy. So these conversations would be even easier. You know, uh, CTBC is a, is a family-owned business. You sit down with uh, one of the family members and you say, hey, do you want to improve conditions? Um, let's say one, two, three, and four. Oh, you only want to do one and two? That's a good start. Let's do that. How long is it going to take? It's a private company. It doesn't take long. So yeah, but they should be even easier. They need to want to. <laughs> well, you need to look at what their interest is. Mm. So do you want to bring in money from abroad? Do you want to create the BVI of Asia? Do you want to create another Singapore? You could. Do you want to create another Hong Kong? You could, if you wanted to. But... If what you're telling me is these people are just happy because they already got their nut and they don't care at the expense of tens of millions of others, well, that's a problem. And that's why you have all these politicians here. And you have so many politicians. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. What if that's Taiwan? And that's why I'm saying how can an outsider, for example, change that? If even within Taiwan, you know, there are a lot of insiders who agree with you. Of course, many Taiwanese who agree with you. But it's really, really difficult to fight with these well, entrenched interest. The thing is, though, it's not necessarily a matter of a fight. If it's a fight, you're having the wrong conversation. Uh, they're still running a business. They are still trying to grow. They're still trying to diversify. You don't use the stick, more of a carrot. What are they trying to accomplish? What, what's their vision? Once you understand their vision, you can actually tie it into other people's visions and you create something that's inclusive. So it's not about forcing them because they're a uh, Taiwanese chebol and, uh, you know, they, they, they got all the gold. Mm. Yeah, but they don't want anyone's help. They don't need anyone's help, you know? They're doing just fine. Okay, well, I'm pretty sure the, the workers might have a different idea about that. Of course. I'm pretty sure some of politicians course. might. I wonder about that one. It depends on which <laughs> side, right? Yeah, I wonder about that, he, wh wh whichever side, but yeah. Well, I'm genuinely skeptical But, of but that. here's the thing, if, that, if that's genuinely the case mm. and they really are the ones that exude all the power and the control, mm -hmm. then you know what, you're right. Um, mm. I'm just here for uh, FaceTime and... Uh, Guess what? That has an expiration date. And that's okay, too. Mm, yeah. So where? Where's next? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll see what happens uh, with the call from uh, the president's office. If that that's happen, true. Right? That's true. Tsai Ing-wen, we we're trying here. Uh, you He's know trying to get your ear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear she's very approachable, and I hear she's uh, very reasonable, and 
Yeah, I think so too. I have not spoken with her, but I have seen quite a few interviews of her um, recently, actually. I was very impressed with what I saw. I'm sure she would be a very, very interesting person to speak with. Actually, no, funny anecdote, now thinking about it. Um, maybe I want to borrow a cup of sugar from her. She technically was my, um, well, she lived or still does or has a place in uh, Yongho, which was right next to where I was living at the time. Oh, okay. I was told this after the fact, but. There you go. We're basically you, neighbors. Use your guanxi. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do it the Taiwanese way. You got to just say, come on, I'm your neighbor. Well, that's what or I'm saying. Or ask a neighbor to, you know. <laughs> Look, we're, we're all neighbors here, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay, so what about the business side? What kind of things are you most interested in here in Taiwan or, or otherwise? For the longest time, I've been very, by nature, I'm actually conservative when it comes to business. Risk averse, risk off. I haven't really done much in crypto for the longest time i've been resisting it until eventually i got more into the space and i started to see what the potential is extrapolating the potential seeing the reality and seeing the eventuality of things um i actually got into a uh, crypto project recently uh ubiquity dow mm. and uh i didn't take that decision lightly the space is the wild west mm -hmm. but um after doing due diligence looking at uh, what i consider green flags for projects i Ubiquity Dow as a project that I want to get involved in. Uh, I have some uh, other involvement also with different uh, finance firms within the space. And uh, I see a lot of growth. I see a lot of uh, innovation, a lot of opportunities. Uh, in Taiwan, I also saw a lot of scams, but that's a mm, different story. Yes, definitely. I think it's a space that's interestingly not exactly regulated in Taiwan. Most of the crypto projects that I saw in Taiwan ended up in a regulatory sandbox. Mm -hmm. And they never came out of it. Uh, recently, there was a uh, company uh, called uh, Sticker Dow. So it wasn't a Dow, it was actually uh, Sticker Inc., like steak with a uh, R at the end. Okay. And uh, Sticker over here, it was really weird to see an article uh, from about eight months ago saying how it's a great innovative company and uh, the owners are really pathfinding through the space, only to see, um, I think it was uh, last week. That um, company shut down in essence, and uh, everybody's arrested. So it's it up and downs for sure. And for me, I like consistency. I don't like drama. I've seen a lot of uh, projects in Asia because uh, I've done blockchains in different different countries, different cities, and uh, I see the mentality. For me, I if I invest in people, well, if I invest in a project, I invest in the people. I want to see a project that has a, a strong technical background, so they have a product. They're actually trying to improve on something that's there or create something that wasn't there. Create a value. Create a need and market towards it effectively and build a product that's scalable. Uh, I, I guess that, that harkens back to my um, Web 2.0 days. If there's a need, there's a business. Mm. Uh, a lot of these uh, companies in crypto just were just smoke and mirrors and just uh, for funsies, just scalping people, scalping investors and working on greed. Right. So this is a, a DAO, a DAO, a yeah. Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Uh, ubiquity DAO. Why is this one different? Why is this one not a scam that will disappear <laughs> tomorrow? <laughs> uh, so I had uh, I had the opportunity of actually spending time with the um, principals and uh, lead developers and seeing from the inside. Are some what, of them here in Taiwan? Yeah. Okay. And um, seeing how they work, seeing how they function, seeing what they actually want to do. One of the biggest things that I liked about them was Animoca came in. Animoca is one of the largest companies yes, to I invest. Mm -hmm. And in their first round, Animoca wanted to buy the whole, the whole lot. And they said, uh, we appreciate that, but no thank you. We want to have additional strategic partners that align with our vision. That's a big That's a flag. boss move. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Mm -hmm. Because you want viability. You want to have a success story. You don't want just um, have exit liquidity. Mm-hmm. From retail investors, yeah, which is a fancy way of saying uh, screwing people and mm -hmm. running away, right? Luna, but yeah, yeah, 
South Korea in the house. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So between that and spending time with the people on a personal level, you see what they're about, not just within the business setting. And to me, that's very important. So I might observe and not say much, but I I hear and I see. And that's how I made the decision to um, get into this project. What is it about Ubiquity DAO that you are interested in? Is it related to the coin? Is it related to the governance structure? Is it related to their vision in terms of, you know, where they want to go? So originally it started out as a uh, stable coin for gaming, just Mm. trying to uh, put a uniform ubiquitous system in place for um, For gaming. Yeah. Okay. Just have a common thread coin and, and exchange infrastructure for it. Okay. Then quickly the team realized that there is a zooming out option here. You extrapolate it. And in essence, you can create the, uh, the bank of the metaverse. You create different tools, different infrastructure, and you're not just limited to being on a, being on a Facebook game as uh, we like to say in Web2. Mm. I'm dating myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, but really though, it's um, imagine a situation where you can reduce the price of existing products. Like um, let's say you had a cup of coffee, you know, uh, Starbucks, for example. Starbucks is a, is a bank. People give it money for free on their gift cards. Yeah, a I lot read of, that in your article. Yeah. I like that analogy. Yeah, can you keep going? Can you sure. explain that? It, yeah. and it, it's very true. Not, not only talking about the statistics of why gift cards were invented because a large percentage of those gift cards get lost and it's free money for the company. Right. But you're putting money on this card. The company has your money. Mm-hmm. They're using this money. And they should be using the money. Oh, they, they are. Yeah. I mean, maybe not for 45-month bonuses, but... <laughs> yeah. True that. But they're reinvesting that money Mm. for free. Now, imagine a situation that you could use Ubiquity or any other similar system, any other DAO, that the company subscribed to and you subscribe to. You can actually get your same product at a discounted rate, and the company can actually use your funds directly on the same platform. By deploying that capital that's kind of sitting there idly. Correct. Right. Mm. What stage in the development of this business or this blockchain project, what stage is Ubiquity in now? Well, right now the market is in a, uh, it's a bear market. So when we're going to a wide audience, we want to do that when conditions are extremely favorable. So we have the opportunity to hone our product and uh, product base. And uh, interestingly enough, we had a couple of uh, spinoffs from our in-house products. Uh, That's not public yet. It will be. But it's always nice to see when you have a company and it's building tools that don't exist and you see that you can extrapolate those tools for other companies to use. So you're incubating different businesses within a business. What kind of industries, at least? I don't know how much you you can divulge about these projects, but what kind of industries are they in or are they all basically blockchain related DeFi and nfts or other kind of things or are they also doing things outside of that space because i also find that quite interesting right dow's investing in yeah almost traditional asset classes right you're gonna see a broader swoon into things mm-hmm. uh can't say too much yet but i'm sure there'll be an article about that so yeah okay yeah. nice yeah that must take some um balls for a person who's risk averse to get into this at this time, right? It's uh, it's kind of choppy waters these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's about uh, minimizing your risk, minimizing your exposure. Uh, it's never going to be zero, but there's no guarantees in life. I saw more green lights than red lights, so mm. I'm going. And uh, same thing with Taiwan. You know, um, mm. not a perfect place. Never said it was. I'm not going to say it's the best place ever, but that's okay. It has a proposition. And if I see more green lights than red lights, then I'll proceed. Okay, so... On a final note, what are some of those green lights that you are seeing here in Taiwan? Please tell us 
for those uh, detractors of yours, how much you love Taiwan. <laughs> what, what is it? What is it about Taiwan that you love? Please share with us, Mr. Gropper. I, I think you have the opportunity here. There's a potential. You mm. have a you have an educated society. There there's a common thread to that society. It's it's homogenous. That's actually a strength right now in the developmental stage with. The right catalyst and the right ideas, wherever they come from, uh, I think there is a very bright future to be had. And again, being an entrepreneur, I like the potential. That's what attracts me. If, however, I don't see that manifest, like a lot of potential that sometimes happens, a lot of businesses fail, then you just move on. I'm hoping that's not going to be the case, but you know, that's life. But I'm being optimistic again. So that's, that's why I put my articles out there. That's why I put my content out there. That's why I get interviewed for all these things. Mm -hmm. People value the opinion, they value the input. I have a background that supports all these opinions. I have experiences that enable these experiences. Put them to use here. Mm, nice. Okay. I love it. I love your optimism. I love <laughs> your go-getter attitude. I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. And I really appreciate you, you know, coming in here and sharing your stories about this. I know, as we talked about, there's always going to be detractors, right? But we have to have that courage to be disliked, you know, and maybe not care too much about that. I mean, I, I really, it doesn't bother me, but you know what? It's always nice to hide behind a keyboard. If these people really feel strongly about it and they want to have an intelligent conversation, maybe I can learn something from them. Maybe mm. they can learn something from me. If we got the time, I'll sit down with them. Nice. That is an open invitation, everyone. Please stop hiding behind those keyboards. <laughs> uh, we will set up a meeting right here on the air or off the air if you'd like because john and i love to have these kind of conversations right and we don't have to agree we can disagree a lot or maybe totally but i think these conversations are really essential and uh, i agree yeah and i really appreciate you coming and sharing those thoughts and definitely i wish you the best of luck i hope this relationship of yours maintains for a bit more you know if you're optimistic i'm happy for you and hope it ends up with a beautiful relationship well we put the invitation out there so you know what i did my part now it's taiwan's all right you heard it here everyone until next time everyone thank you very much for listening if you have any questions reach out and if you want to talk to Mr. Gropper, get in touch and yeah, we'll put you in touch. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks again. All right. Thank you, everyone. Peace.